Good morning. It's good to be with all you guys this morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to look this morning at Luke's version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to call it the Disciples' Prayer today. But it's uh, what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And then if we have time, we're going to kind of briefly look at this wonderful illustration Jesus gives after he teaches the disciples what will become their prayer. He gives them this illustration that summons them to persevere in prayer. So we're going to look at those two things. But if you'll join me, um, in re- oh, I'll read it if you'll listen. Uh, I'm going to read Luke 1, uh, 11, 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a friend at midnight will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs." And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the encouragement that we have in this Word to pray. And we thank You for this beautiful, simple prayer that Jesus gave His early disciples and now gives us. In Your name we pray. Amen. So, this morning we're looking at this uh, text that maybe many of you know very well, the Lord's Prayer. And what's interesting about Luke is that Luke, more than any other gospel writer, saturates his gospel with prayer. Jesus prays all the time in Luke's gospel. You can turn the page and find Jesus praying. Turn another page, find him praying. Turn another page, find somebody else praying. But prayer covers this gospel. And in fact, the, the entirety of the gospel of, of Luke is encapsulated in two prayers. It's bookended with prayers. The very first thing that happens in the gospel of Luke, after Luke gives his introduction to Theophilus, the person he's writing his letter to, is he begins to tell a story to us about a priest and his prayer. So we walk in to the, to the story of Luke's gospel. Here we are. And it begins with a priest in the temple. He's set apart to burn incense. And while uh, Luke says the community of Israel is all praying outside, an angel appears inside. 
to announce the God of Israel's answer to this specific priest, Zechariah, to answer his particular prayer about his barren wife. Remember, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, can't have a baby. And the angel Gabriel shows up and says, actually, your wife is going to have a baby. So at the very beginning of, do you guys remember what I'm talking about? At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we get this moment where Luke says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And that Zechariah was going to become the father of John the Baptist. But at that time, he was just simply a priest who was chosen by lot to enter a sanctuary and offer incense to God. And while Zechariah is doing that, just doing this really typical prayer, offering incense to God, mentioning to him his concern about his wife's barrenness, God breaks in and moves. Gabriel shows up, says this stuff. Your wife is actually going to have a child. But Zechariah does the unthinkable when an angel shows up. He doesn't believe him. An angel shows up in front of Zechariah in the temple, says your wife's going to have a baby, and Zechariah says, can't be. Just there's no way it could be. So what does the angel Gabriel do? He strikes Zechariah mute. And so Zechariah, after that, is supposed to go outside to the community of Israel that's been praying along with him outside the temple, but he can't bless them because he has no voice. So silence has been imposed on Zechariah. That's how Luke's gospel starts. But Luke's gospel also ends with prayer. It does the kind of exact but kind of opposite thing at the very end of the gospel. After witnessing the risen Christ ascend into heaven to sit next to his father, Jesus' tiny little band of exultant disciples make their way back to Jerusalem, thrilled about what they've seen and heard. And Luke ends his gospel by saying that those disciples go into the very same temple that Zechariah fell mute in, walk into that room, and Luke's last words in his whole gospel is to say, and they continually blessed God. So from beginning to end, Luke is trying to tell us that prayer is critical in God's story of redemption. The one Jesus who identified with the, sin, the sinfulness of God's covenant people when he submitted to the baptism by the son, Zechariah, the once muted priest, who said that he was playing the part of Israel's Messiah, who was rejected as such by the temple authorities and the throngs gathered in the city of Jerusalem, who prayed for his enemies when they crucified him and prayed to his father as he died in the ninth hour, the very hour that Luke said Zechariah would have been offering incense at the very beginning of the gospel. That man has risen from the dead. So Luke depicts Jesus as the fulfillment, which we'll learn more about in a couple weeks, of God's redemptive plan. The whole drama of redemption has reached its climax. But all of that grandeur and beauty begins and ends with prayer. All of that happens with prayer. Now, I just want to know why that is. Why, why, I mean, this thing that often we just look at is kind of a rudimentary spiritual discipline. Why does Luke place, place such, emphasize it so much in everything that he does? He's emphasizing it. Well, I think it's because 
Luke knows that the characters that are at the center of his story, all these people that are bustling about the gospel of Luke, understand that they're not the author of the story. They didn't write it. In some ways, you can say that Luke knows that all of his disciples, all these people running around in the gospel of Luke, other than Jesus, they aren't, they aren't even really the main characters of the story. They're just kind of supporting characters. And they know that for this story to run forward with such depth and irony and intrigue and providence takes the perpetual intervention of a kind, loving, and diligent author. Communion with the author of that story is going to be critical. That's kind of the big reason. The smaller reason, maybe, maybe even more poignant for us this morning, is that the Gospel of Luke, which we've talked about for like the last five weeks, every week, the Gospel of Luke is full of people that are totally slow and unwilling to listen to Jesus and to follow him. And for that illness of heart, Jesus offers the medicine of communion with his Father. That's a huge reason why Luke does it too. So here's the gist. I'm going to give you kind of where we're going real quickly in two different ways this morning. Uh, why Luke uses prayer so often and how the Lord, Lord's Prayer works. Those are the two questions I'm kind of asking. Um, I think Luke associates prayer with the advancement of God's redemptive story. He associates it with gaining insight into the significance of the story and its story's central character, Jesus and with preparation for participation in the story. That's the dense way of saying it. Here's the simple way of saying it. God is using prayer to bring in the reign of his kingdom. And he's using prayer to give you eyes to see him doing that. And he's using prayer to shape you into a useful disciple of his. Prayer is critical. And as we look at the Lord's Prayer this morning, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer kind of coming through the filter of those three things. God's using prayer to bring in the reign of his kingdom. God is using prayer to give you, give you eyes to see his kingdom coming. And then finally, he's using prayer to shape you into a useful disciple of his. All right, so the first thing, prayer is associated with the glory of God in the presence of his kingdom. God is using prayer to bring his kingdom on the earth. The first two lines of uh, the disciples' prayer here, the first two lines are, are memorable. Whether we read Matthew's account or we read Luke's account of the disciples' prayer, um, the first two things we get is Jesus saying, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, those are simple phrases, but they can be difficult to kind of get the gist of. At least they are for me. And the reason is, is because oftentimes when I think about those two phrases, I think of them like in the indicative tense instead of in the imperative tense. Like as if Jesus is just saying, Lord, Father, your name is holy. Father, your kingdom is here. Like as if Jesus was just saying, kind of stating facts about what's going on. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Father, hallow your name. It's an earnest plea with a loving Father to bring the fame of God's name on an earth where Jesus knows is deeply despised. 
He's calling for justice to fill the earth in, a, in an earth that Jesus knows can be overwhelmingly sad and despairing of its own brokenness. Jesus has the audacity to say to his father, Father, please glorify your name in this earth because it's not being glorified. And if anyone's going to make it glorified, it has to come through you. It's in the imperative tense. It's not in the indicative tense. If you were a carpenter and you went to work tomorrow and you first thing tomorrow morning, Monday morning, you saw your boss and your boss said to you, the cabinets you build are square. That's kind of a useless, I mean, maybe they're square, maybe they're not, but it's just kind of a vague general, it doesn't really drive at anything. It's surely not motivating. But if your boss came to you and said, Monday morning, we're here Monday morning, the cabinets you build today better be square. That creates a new event. You're in a completely new situation now, and your boss might even put a condition on it and say, if the cabinets you build today aren't square, we may or may not have anything for you to do on Tuesday, right? That creates a new set of events. But in this situation, Jesus is saying, call for your father to hallow his name on the earth. And that gets to the heart of God's own agenda. It gets to the heart of what we've watched Jesus do for the last 10 chapters, which is walk around and try for his, and labor to see his father's name be hallowed. That theme runs all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. You find God, God's people asking for God to, to magnify his name everywhere, and you find God talking about the greatness of his name everywhere. Now, one of the places, maybe you see it most frequently, and I thought of this because a few weeks ago, whenever we were on the Transfiguration, David talked about Jesus' clear, Luke's clear connection that he's making between the redemption that Jesus is offering his people and the Exodus, the book of Exodus and the story of Israel's Exodus out of Egypt. And I wonder if it could be here too. I think it is. God revealed himself, remember this part at the beginning of Exodus, to Moses in the burning, book, in the burning bush, speaking his name, telling Moses what his name is, and giving it as the main reason why he could be trusted to bring the children of Israel out of captivity. And then, just a little while later in the story of Exodus, um, it would be the honor of God's name that Moses would use as a fulcrum to get in his great prayer for Israel's forgiveness after they build the golden calf. Now, here's what happens in that episode. Israel builds a golden calf. Moses is away, comes back, finds all of the people of Israel committing idolatry against God. He's furious, and he knows God must be disappointed. So what he does is, in his prayer, he goes to God and he says, Lord, surely, I mean surely, you're, you would not defame your name by drawing these people out of the land of Egypt only for them to build a golden calf and then you're going to destroy them? Do you know what a mockery you will be made among the nations if you do that? You see how that works as a fulcrum there? Moses is getting God to a tipping point where he knows 
that if I say there's no way God's going to ever defame himself. And if I can connect the dots between God's honor and the rescue of his people, God's going to act on Israel's behalf. So Jesus knows he's saying something big when he says, Father, hallow your name. But it's the same thing with the kingdom. Your kingdom come. Think back on the issue of the Exodus um, and the coming of the kingdom of God. Remember the great battle between Moses and Pharaoh? Whose kingdom is going to reign? Who's going to win here? Is it going to be Moses, who's got the Lord, the God of Israel on his side? Or is it going to be Pharaoh? Is Pharaoh going to be established as the mighty one who can thwart God's plan to rescue his people from slavery? Or is the kingdom of God about to come in swarms of locusts, packs of frogs, rivers of blood, and then finally the death of Egypt's firstborn so that God's firstborn, Israel, may live forever. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Therefore, let my people go that they may serve me, is what the Lord says at the beginning of Exodus. So Jesus is doing something that has stood the test of time to call for God's name to be hallowed, and to call for his kingdom to come. Secondly, prayer, I think, tunes God's people into the nature of God's mission. One of the things that we've seen over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Luke is the failure of God's people to understand his purpose. Um, Zach Eswine, an author, writes about this perfectly in his delectable little book, Sensing Jesus. But he says... Consider the disciples. They had learned a curriculum of ministry ways long before Jesus called them to follow him. Because of this, discipleship with Jesus meant unlearning and reinterpreting many of their basic instincts. And you'll remember this list that I'm about to give from the last month. When Jesus' disciples encountered Samaritans, James and John were ready to call down fire from heaven and destroy them. That's in Luke 9. When the disciples saw children wanting time with Jesus, the disciples rebuked the little children. That's in Luke 9 and in Luke 18. When a woman broke open an alabaster jar to perfume Jesus with her adoration, the disciples were indignant when they saw her. And then they gave that woman grief. When they saw Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, the Jewish disciples were baffled. When the disciples saw Jesus on the verge of betrayal, they readied their swords to do violence. When they witnessed a rich man walking away from Jesus' invitation, they wondered, then who can be saved? When the disciples saw a man born blind, this is in John 4, they assumed that the disability that that this young man had was a punishment for his sin. When those who followed Jesus and ministered to others were not part of the disciples' group, the disciples assumed that the others' ministry should be stopped. It's in Luke 9 again. Now, what, what I, when you read a list like that, you're dying to know where people learn this stuff. I mean, where do you learn to act that way? I mean, how, who, who taught the disciples to see Samaritans as second-class citizens that ought to be mistreated? Who taught them that children who want time with a teacher of God are a nuisance? Where do you learn something like that? When you're following Jesus, how do you ever think that children being with Jesus would bother Jesus? Who taught them that? 
Why, when they saw a woman worshiping, did they assume the worst about her motives? Why would they do that? Who taught them that violence was a justified response to betrayal? Where did they learn that? Why is it when they saw a disease in a person, they interpreted it as punishment from God for an individual or family sin? I want to know where they learned this stuff. But even more than that, I want to know, I want to know where I learned it because I do all of this stuff all the time. And I'm just as bewildered at my own heart as we are when we look at the disciples. But I really want to know, how does that change? What, does, what kind of remedy does God offer for transformation where this stuff is going to continue to go on, but discipleship to Jesus is gradually becoming something that looks more and more like Jesus? What needs to happen here? Well, we know what doesn't work, don't we? We learned that last week. I mean, David told us from Jesus' words that simply tacking on something else to do, pulling ourselves by our, up by our bootstraps and trying to do better just simply won't work. It has to be, surely, it must be the prayer of a whole community longing for Jesus to dive in and change them from the inside out. And the beginning of that prayer has got to be, Lord, increase my vision for the way that you see the world. Where do you see that in the Lord's Prayer? Doesn't it just start at the very least by the fact that Jesus starts that prayer by addressing the one who has authority over the whole earth as his father? Doesn't that change everything? when you think about God that way, when you don't look at God as a vindictive authority over the whole earth, but as a loving father that would no more give you a scorpion when you ask for an egg than he would give you a, ser a serpent when you ask for a fish. He's your loving father. He's longing to tune us in to the heart of Jesus' mission. And then finally, God gives his people all they need to be his disciples when they ask for those things. Think about the four things that Jesus asked the disciples to pray for personally, and I'm just going to rattle these off. One, Jesus calls the disciples to ask for daily bread. Two, Jesus calls the disciples to ask for the forgiveness of their own sins. Third, he tells them to pray so that they not be led into temptation. And then at the end of this passage, after Jesus' brilliant illustration here, he reminds the disciples to ask their father, for their father's Holy Spirit. Discipleship to Jesus happens in real life, in real time. And so disciples need basic resources for survival. Jesus is not a mystic in the way that we often think of that word. His feet were firmly rooted on the earth. And he knew that his disciples had basic needs. He taught them to ask for daily bread, just like we have to ask for that. For his mission to go on, his disciples had to survive. They had to make it alive through the next day. The disciples are also taking the message of free grace and forgiveness to the world. And so it's obviously critical that their sins be forgiven. While they're on mission, Jesus doesn't want there to be any undue obstacles to them proclaiming the gospel of free grace. And so Jesus says, Father, he teaches the disciples to say, don't lead us into temptation. 
Don't put any undue obstacles in our path. And for all of this, it's critical that God gives them the Holy Spirit, that he might always be working in their hearts to deeply love God more. I just want to talk for a quick minute, totally practically about prayer and tell you something that I've learned in my own life as to how to use the Lord's Prayer. If you're anything like me and you resolve to do some more praying in your life and you get some solitude, you get in that solitude, maybe you like solitude, maybe you don't like solitude. I happen to love being alone, but when I get alone, my mind happens to kind of race all over the place and it's hard for me to focus. I've got some introvert in me too, uh, but I, I struggle to kind of comprehend what's going I struggle to focus. That's a big problem of mine. The Lord's Prayer is a wonderful, short, memorable model to talk to your Father that you can do in four minutes or five minutes. And what I do with the Lord's Prayer is I just pray it in concentric circles. The person that I know better than anybody else in the world that needs prayer more than anybody else in the world is me. And so when I pray, I start with John Pauling. And I say, Father, hallowed be your name in my life. It's not hallowed, frankly. It's not where it ought to be, but I want it to be. And so today, will you make your name great in my life? When people see me, will they say, wow, the God of Israel, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is a great and wonderful, compassionate, loving Father. I pray that. And I say, Lord, your kingdom come in my life. The tiny, little, small piece of real estate that you've given me on this earth to influence, I want it to be influenced for your kingdom. Help your kingdom things to just be emanating from me this day. Father, I got to live. I got to live today. Give me today my daily bread. I can't do anything unless you give me the basic things that I need for today. Forgive me, of, forgive me for my sins. You know, whatever it is that day, that day. Lord, I spent every dime that my family has on online poker last night or whatever. You know, forgive me for that. Whatever it is. I yelled at my wife. I hate my boss. Forgive me for those things. Forgive me for those things in my life that damage my relationship with you. And Father, don't lead me into temptation. Don't put any undue obstacles in my life that need to go away and give me your spirit. I pray that for me. And then I, it's so simple. I just start going out. I pray that for Anna, my wife. And I pray it for my kids. And then I pray it for my good friends. And then I pray it for Columbia Presbyterian Church. And I'm telling you, you can go all the way out to the globe in five minutes. And that is a magnificent awesome thing that you've done that day. You've communed with your father about the most important things that there are in this world. So in conclusion, Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's Messiah. And he's come at last and he's, he ushers in a new day. A new day of prayer for a new community who gathers in his name, calls upon God as father, and is filled with the gift he said his father would give to those who ask. 
Columbia Presbyterian Church, you are that people. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has given you himself three times over this morning. He's given you himself, his Father. He's given you his Son, Jesus, to be united to you as your brother and advocate and Savior. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to indwell you and guide you as you live a life testifying to the glory and authority and grace of his Son. Now will you join me in urgent and prevailing prayer to God for the sake of justice and love in our city and for the sake of the salvation of men through Jesus' blood. Let's pray to that end. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen.